Church, can I ask you this morning to show that you are the church by being willing to pray for your brothers and sisters. We had many people walk up here and please don't ever apologize for walking up front and sharing your heart with your church family. But I beg of the rest of you sitting there that may not have walked up, or even if you did walk up, you can still do this, but find someone that was up here and had a need and pray with them after the service or this week or call them or follow up with them and lift their need up to the Lord. <laughs> it, is, uh, it is quite obviously the most gigantic understatement we could ever make. But we need God so desperately, don't we? And if you would be so, so humble this morning to <laughs> make that very personal and not just uh, apply that to all the messes that everyone else has going on. And just say that I need God so desperately. Because I really do. Do you pay attention when people are praying? Merlin just prayed. Closing words, he prayed for me, which I appreciate. Thank you, by the way. Prayed for me to bring the message, and he used this phrase. The phrase was that he asked that God would open our hearts to the Scripture. And so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to continue tracking our way through the text that uh, we have in the Scriptures in the book of Ephesians, this letter from Paul. And as you will find out that that phrase, I think, actually is very pertinent, and I don't know that he intended that necessarily, but it certainly works out. We're going to be reading today verses 15 through 23. Go through the end of the chapter here this morning. I will tell you, and I see it even now more as uh, time has moved on, the wisdom of God. But uh, as I was preparing this week for this message, I realized, given all the notes I had scratched out and all the things, places I thought we ought to be going with the text that we're going to be spending at least two weeks here, so uh, there's far more here than we could talk about this morning, and certainly, as I said, now that I see time has moved on, I think you'll be grateful that we have a part one and a part two, not just a part one that we're still going to get in today. But we're going to read the text both weeks. Verse 15 through 23, Paul continues uh, his opening, uh, just eloquent language of, of uh, the blessings we have in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to just read now this morning. Follow carefully along. Verse 15. For this reason, Paul says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead in the heavenly places. Sorry, I skipped a line there. My eyes are a little blurred still. Let me just start reading that. I'm all step back up way far here. 
Let me go back to verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Excuse me just a moment. I entitled the, mess, the sermon this morning, Enlighten the Eyes of your heart, which is an interesting phrase that part of the reason we have uh, two parts of this or two weeks with this text is because there's so much to dig into with this phrase by itself and setting up what I think Paul really wants us to know uh, with, with this text here, which we're not even going to get to. So I'm just going to throw that out right away is that the, 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 the height or the crux or the, the, uh, the, the culmination of the text of what he's trying to say to us, we're not even going to quite get to this week. We're going to have to save that for next week because there's so much here in what we want to unwrap or get ready to or prepare ourselves to study this. Enlighten, let me turn my clicker on, enlighten the eyes of your heart. An interesting phrase that does not appear in scripture very many times. It comes from verse 18, so I'm just going to throw that up there for you. Here is what I would say is the main point of this text, although there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes with it. Paul is saying, I want something to happen, and what I want to happen is I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened, to have light shed on them. Now, the eyes of your heart is a very interesting phrase because, well, first of all, we don't have eyes in our heart, right? We don't see with our heart. And actually, the word heart there, depending on what translation you're reading, doesn't even say heart. It might say understanding or something to do with your mind or some of those things. The actual Greek word is the word dianoia. Again, if you, have a, if you want to follow along, there's a handout on the back side of your bulletin if it helps you do that. Dianoia is the word which means deep thought. It's literally two words. Dia means through typically. And noia is a, the verb form of the word noose, which is your mind. So it's, it's like through your mind. It's through your thoughts or through your thinking. It has this idea. And the reason the ESV does not translate it, your, your mind, is because it carries a deeper connotation. It's not just what you're thinking up here. It's more central to the core of who you are. It's what you're feeling and your desires and your aims, which is why it uses the word heart, which is also not quite true because the Greek word for heart would be cardia, which would be the, like the literal thing that's beating in your chest. It's not that at all either. It's, as, the, as Thayer says, the mind as a faculty of understanding, feeling, and desiring. It's your way of thinking or understanding the world as you see it and the desires you have in relation to that. It's this deep thing inside of you that Paul is saying, I want to bring light. I want the eyes of that. If I could use a, borrow a phrase because the light, uh, the light is let into us through our eyes, right? You understand that. I want to let the eyes of this core of you to be enlightened. I want you to open them to see what is happening around you, to see who God is. And we're going to find out next week what all he wants us to know. But uh, we got to save that. A contra-example or sort of an opposite example is given of what he has in mind here with this idea of the eyes of our heart when Paul opens his letter to the Romans. He's doing the opposite this time. Notice what he says there. He says, for although they, the godless ones, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Two very key things. 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So he, there he actually separates them into two different phrases. He says, they became futile in how they thought, the mind, and their heart, it was darkened. It became darkened. See, he's seeing the opposite. What we just read, what I titled my sermon is that he wants your eyes of your heart to be enlightened, for you to, to grow in light, to, to see more. And he says, here's, the, here's an example of the opposite, by the way, is when you, they knew who God was, but they chose not to honor him as God or to give thanks to him, and their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They began to walk in more increasing darkness and not less darkness. Of course, if you read the rest of Romans chapter 1, I think you'll find a very fitting explanation or description of our culture that we live in. Now, this is solidly the work of Jesus, this enlightening the eyes of our heart. It's solidly the work of Jesus. Isaiah, long before Jesus ever walked on the earth, he said this about the one who was to come. He said that God was saying, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. He uses two different examples that have this idea of coming out of darkness and into the light. Those are phrases that Paul would use in the book of Colossians then, to come out of darkness and into his marvelous or glorious light. But this is the work that Jesus was going to come do. He was going to open the eyes of those that are blind. Now let me ask you something. When you are blind, does that mean there's nothing outside of it that you can see? Like, maybe I asked that weirdly. Does that mean there's nothing out there to see? When you are blind, does that mean there's like just this vacuum in front of you and there's nothing to see? No, the answer to that is no. Of course, there's all kinds of things there, right? But you can't see it, can you? I'm starting to build what Paul is trying to get across to us. When you are in the dungeon, in the darkness, does that mean there is no light out there? No. It just means you're not in it, right? You don't have access to it. Jesus came to move us from that position. to some, And in fact, the disciples reflected that exact same thing. Think of the disciples that walked with Jesus after he was resurrected, and they went along the way, and he taught them from the scriptures, and it says in Luke 24, 45, that they said this, the disciples acknowledged this about Jesus himself, that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Similar phrasing, it's not the exact words, but similar phrasing. He opened their minds to understanding scripture. Now, Paul elsewhere in his letter to the Corinthians, he uses, again, the same type of language when he talks about us understanding and receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ and being set free. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he says, for God who said, and look what he goes back to. He could have said that God said lots of things, right? That God said, I'm going to deliver you. That God said, I'm going to save you. That God said, I'm going to rescue you. That God said, I'm going to protect you. That God said, I'm going to feed you. God said all those things, right? But he doesn't go to any of those. He says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Way to the very beginning which is the very core of who God is, let light shine out of darkness. For that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And Paul is describing salvation to us. He's saying those of us who have, have been enlightened in these verses, we have understood the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We have had our hearts enlightened. God, just like he spoke long ago and said, let there be light and the darkness and the light came, God does the same thing in our hearts when we come to receive Jesus Christ. Let there be light in this heart. 
and their eyes are open to understand who Jesus is, and Jesus does what Jesus, uh, what was said about him that he was going to do. He's going to give sight to the blind and freedom to the captives. Those sitting in the dungeon of darkness are going to be released to the light of day. Now, I kind of hinted to this. I just want to come back to this because all of this carries, this, this light and darkness, this interplay between, all of this carries the implication that this is not the enlightening of, or the opening of the eyes of our heart or the enlightening of the eyes of our heart is not talking about like, like creating something that we can finally understand, something new that was previously not there. It's in helping us see what was already there. Let me give you this example. Yesterday, I was in Holmes County, Ohio at my sister's house, and they have beautiful hills with, with, with green-covered uh, hills with cows grazing. I went out running in the morning, and there's cows are grazing. And if there's a cow standing in that valley or that field somewhere and is surrounded by all this beauty, there's a creek meandering through, and there's this luscious green grass, and there's these hills, and I saw this incredible sunrise. When the cow is standing there and is seeing something, what all is the cow seeing? What is it appreciating? What does the cow recognize out of that scenario? Is its heart lifted up to the grandeur of God? No, it's seeing green grass that it can eat, right? And maybe a creek over there and get a cool drink. But when I'm running through there, what am I seeing? I'm seeing the glory of God on display because there's an awareness of something. There's an awareness that this grandeur, this is something bigger and greater and points to someone bigger and greater then just it's going to feed my stomach. Now, you may think I'm being a little harsh in comparing unbelievers to dumb beasts, but I want it to be on the record that I'm not the first one to do that. Psalm 73, the psalmist says this, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Now, that's even worse because he called himself that, right? Well, okay, so let, let's just get something straight. Can you and I acknowledge that? That is true for us. That before we had the eyes of our heart enlightened and opened to see who Jesus was, we were like beasts toward God. Was the truth of Jesus not there? Like, had Jesus not saved you already? Like, were your sins not already forgiven? Of course they were, but you just didn't know it yet. You hadn't acknowledged it yet. Your, the eyes of your heart had not been opened to it yet. That's what Paul is talking about. This phrase, that's what Paul is talking about. That there's an awareness that we get. It's always been there. It's always out there. But there's an awareness that we can get that suddenly something means so much more. And I would tell you that if any of us are being honest or willing to be honest, that's exactly what it's like when we come to know Christ. Is this growing awareness that all these things, I suddenly realize how much God does. All these little things that I thought just happened to work out in life or maybe I thought I did them. And I suddenly realized there's no, there's no chance, there's not a way that's, that's, what, that's how it is. I could not have made that happen like that. I, that, wasn't, that wasn't my doing. God does all these things around me, and suddenly I become aware of that. It's always been true, but I suddenly become aware of that. Jesus, by the way, reflected on this same idea of the truth that's there, but is not always acknowledged or not always wanted to be acknowledged, because he's answered the, when the disciples asked him, why do you speak in parables? That's exactly what he said to them. I speak in parables because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand.
I don't, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what you do with verses like this. I don't know if it puts you in a difficult place or not. I think it at least should make you a little uncomfortable. That there is, there is, there is a hiding or a veiling for those who don't want to know God or don't want to follow him or honor him that actually obscures the truth even more. And the reason I say that should make us uncomfortable is because it should make us realize that something has to happen for us to break that veil and begin to see, right? Something has to happen. Well, that's actually what this text is about. Paul, in this, these verses, 15 to 23, he's talking about, I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened. And he has some specific things about that. But again, we're going to have to wait there because as glorious as those things are, there are some things we have to do to lay, to lay the foundation, to, to get there, to get ready for that. For example, let's go back to verse 15. Because he begins all this by saying it's for this reason. Well, for what reason? For what reason? What did Paul just talk about in the last section? We got through this just last week. We finished it. We had a couple weeks called Blessings in Christ. And Paul outlines these incredible blessings in Christ, right? In Jesus Christ, we have redemption. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. In him, in Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. We have a share. We have, we have received something from God that we didn't deserve, but it is a share for us. We've obtained an inheritance. And in Jesus Christ also, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the down payment, the guarantee that someday we will arrive where he has said we're going to arrive. But if you notice in the middle of that last one, we addressed it last week, but in the middle of that last in him, in verse 13, 14, in the middle of that, he has a parenthetical statement that says, by the way, you receive this sealing if when you hear the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believe. Which is why he now says, it is for this reason, because I've heard that you did believe. Now, Paul actually lived with them for a number of years, so he actually saw some of it with his eyes. But even since that time, he has heard that they have this faith, that's growing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, this growing love for each other. For this reason, this is why I'm going to... Now, notice, notice, this is very critical for the church, by the way. We may automatically, and this is not bad, but we may automatically assume that the prayers of enlightening the eyes of people's hearts are applied to those who are non-believers, and they should be, by the way, so that they can have their eyes opened and they can see the glory of what God has done for them through Jesus Christ, that they too have received an inheritance, have redemption, all these things. However, the takeaway for the church from this text is that we don't stop asking for the eyes of the heart to be opened. Because look at what he's doing. He's saying... He's saying what's coming down the road that I'm going to get to yet, all the powerful things he's asking that are going to happen, the enlightening the eyes of our heart. He's saying, I'm actually praying that because I've heard that you are, have believed, because you are believers. It's not like he's saying, well, now that was done. Glad you finally became a believer, and now I'm going to move on to the next thing, and you'll be fine. He's saying, I am going to continue to, well, what is he going to continue to do? I'm going to continue to give thanks for you. Remember the... The two things he mentioned in Romans, can anyone like jog our memories? The two things he mentioned in Romans that caused their, futile, their minds to become futile and their hearts to become darkened, there were two things they did not do. They knew God, but what? They did not honor him as God, and neither did they give thanks to him. Look what he says, the very next thing out of his mouth. Because I heard that you were faith, had faith in Jesus Christ and this love for each other, I never cease to give thanks for you. I'm always thanking God 
that you are there, that you exist, that you have seen the light. Now, Paul does this, excuse me, <clears throat> Paul does this very often in his scriptures. Sorry about that. He does this very often in his letters. He's very vocal about his thanksgiving. And I think he's laying down a pattern that he wants us to pick up. I'm not sure we're picking it up, but I think he's laying down a pattern for us to pick up. Every letter, you can look through this, but I think every letter that Paul writes in the New Testament has strong language about his thankfulness for those believers, for those people that are there. I, gave, I chose one example because it fits in really well. Second Thessalonians. It's, by the way, his second letter he wrote to these same group of people. And he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. That's how it should be. Because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. It, 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 it strikes me. It occurs, uh, it occurs to me. It, 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 it impresses me. It's impressed upon me, if I get the right words out of here. It's impressed upon me that our world is so full of bad news. I think it's about time that we step up a little higher. We, we, we elevate the plane just a little more in our thanksgiving, in recognizing the things that we have to be thankful for. I'm telling you, we might be high-minded and arrogant about it if we have a mindset that says we're not like those people in Romans chapter 1. What were the two things that made their hearts become darkened and their mind futile? Let's just say them again, right? They knew God. Whoa, whoa, that means they, whoa, that means they were probably somewhere exposed to the gospel, right? Like, at least like they knew God, right? But they did not honor him as God, and they were not thankful. And if we get sucked into this vortex of all bad news, and we're checking our Facebook feeds and just, just tearing our hair out of all the bad stuff that's happening. We're watching the news and all this bad stuff, and, and our conversations are filled with, did you hear what happened over there? That's, uh, all of this. If we get sucked into that, I'm telling you, that's one out of those two things. I don't know if there's a, one comes first or one comes second. I think they go hand in hand. Let me just say this. I loved, because I heard it, like at least twice here this morning from people sharing. And I want to tell you this morning from behind the pulpit, which I think often carries a bit more weight than down there. Listen, brothers and sisters, I am thankful to God for all of you and your sincere desire to follow Jesus Christ and be right with him. As is fitting, I give thanks to God for all of you, for your abundance of growing in faith and the abundance of growing in your love that you have for each other. Well, as a little break in our sermon, uh, would you just uh, take a moment to appreciate something else we have to be thankful for? And that's uh, these little verses we've been memorizing. I want to work them in every Sunday. So if you have a verse card with you, if you don't have one with you, uh, I think there's still a few out back there. You'll have to just kind of uh, go along with us here at this moment. If you would stand to your feet again, I think it's maybe just makes us a little more awake and energetic and uh, we're, if, you, if, you, if you don't have a card, you can follow along in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is a section of group of verses that we have, uh, are undertaking to memorize as a church body, having to do with the text that we're studying. 
So if you would, just read them through with me, and we will continue this journey of memorization. These are, by the way, if I can tell you today, this is something that we ought to be very thankful for. These words we're going to read, something we're very thankful for. Let's read together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You may be seated again. Again, it probably will take some effort on your part at home to continue memorizing these verses. We're going to keep reading through them, but one time through on a Sunday morning is probably not going to get, at least it probably won't get me there in memorizing that whole, that whole passage, the whole text. Well, let's continue. Paul says, since I've heard of your faith, I'm never stopping to give thanks to God. And then he says that this is how it comes, by the way. We should know this. But when he thanks God, he's doing it in his prayers. But I want to make a point of this. He's remembering you, he says, the Ephesians, I'm remembering you in my prayers. He's remembering them in their prayers, in his prayers. Let me just pause for a moment and make sure you're paying attention. If we want the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened, we need prayer. It will not happen in other ways. <laughs> because this is not something that we do. It's not, we don't open the own, our own eyes of our hearts, right? It's something that God does in us through his Holy Spirit. Which is why I'm making a point of this. I'm praying Paul says, I'm praying for you. Now, he starts that by looking back and saying, I'm thanking that you have found faith, but we're going to very quickly move into what he's asking on the other side. But I want to stop for just a moment because I want to make the point about prayer. Jesus told this one parable. Remember, he told parables for those that uh, really wanted to know they could find out and those that really didn't want to. We're like, I don't get that. And one that might even be sometimes hard for us as believers to get. He told this parable in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8, about this widow that kept going to the judge and nagging him and nagging him and nagging him and nagging him and nagging him. And, nagging him. and finally, the judge, who didn't fear God and didn't care about people, basically what it says, he said, I'm done. I'm going to give her what she wants because she's just going to keep coming every single day. And sometimes we might look at that and say, what is this trying to tell us? That God doesn't want to answer prayers? That we're supposed to nag God in some way? Well, thankfully, actually, Jesus told them exactly why he's telling them the parable before he even said it. One of the few times he did, by the way. Usually he waited till they asked. But in this instance, 
probably knowing what, how, how we're going to struggle with it, he actually told them exactly what I was going to say. He said, now I'm going to tell you this story. Luke tells us that he, he said, I told this parable so that the disciples would know that they always ought to keep praying and never lose heart. That they always ought to keep praying and never lose heart. For when it seems as if nothing is happening, when it seems as if God is not moving, we are to continue crying out to him. It's at the end of that story that the question that Jesus asked comes right through the pages of the Bible, right through the decades and millennia of time, and right into this room to us today. Do you know what question he asks? I'm telling you, it has everything to do about prayer. you know what question he asks? I'll put it up there for you so you can read it for yourself. Jesus, at the end of that story, says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? If you want a translation of that, will he find anyone left praying? Because that's what the whole story is about, right? That we should always pray and not lose heart. The question will be when Jesus returns, will anyone be left praying? Will there be anybody left who's displaying their trust in God by crying out to him and saying, God, if you don't change these situations, they're not going to change. If you don't reverse things in me, it's not, if, if I don't have you inside of me, then I'm not going to arrive where I want to arrive. All of those things. If the eyes of my heart are not opened, I'm in big trouble. If I don't become aware of the reality, not the ones I'm seeing with my physical eyes, the, the stuff that's out there and, 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 and the anger, the angst I have against people that are, that are physical, but if I don't truly begin to understand what's happening in the spiritual realm, then I am going to be very sorry when you come. And the question is going to be, will he find anyone? I'm, let me just say it again. If we want people's eyes of their hearts to be under, opened and understand who God is, there must be prayer. Undoubtedly, this is exactly what the first early church fathers, apostles, had in mind in Acts chapter 6, verse 4. Undoubtedly, when they came and said, hey, these widows are getting overlooked, and they said, let's choose some of these men. We're going to call them deacons. That's the Greek word they used there. Then they said, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They saw this clear distinction, immediately said, yes, there's great need, got to be taken care of, but that's not what we're supposed to be doing. We are to be praying and speaking and teaching the word. Um, by the way, we just saw both of those things show up in our text in Ephesians chapter 1. We don't have, uh, we have so much we could go, so many places we could go with this. It's right in these texts, right? In him, verse 13, you were, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit. How does that happen except but that the word of truth is proclaimed? And then he's going to turn the page and say, I, I'm remembering you and I'm in my prayers and I'm crying out to God on your behalf all the time. There's, there's two things. Might I be so bold as to say to our leadership team here in this church to say this is the calling God has called to us if we're going to be an elder of this church is that we are to pray and to proclaim the word, to give the gospel of truth to people. That is what we are called to. I pray often, I pray often for this body. But I can also tell you, after studying the text for this week, I don't pray often enough for this body.
And I'm sorry to you for that. Most of you know that I, <laughs> I rebel against words like, or phrases like you deserve, because I don't think we deserve much of anything other than God's wrath. But that's what came out of my mouth. What went through my mind is that you deserve a pastor who will pray for you. You deserve a leadership team. And I don't even mean that you deserve. It's what the church needs. It's what the brothers and sisters the church needs is a pastor and leaders who will spend great chunks of time praying for you. I put my own words to test, don't I? You will not become deep, abiding believers in Jesus Christ simply because I have these clever ways of preaching and can just illustrate Scripture to you in such powerful ways. Because you know, in the same room, there are people hearing the exact same sermons, and to some, the heart is open like a flower to receive the rain that comes, and it feeds upon it, and to others, it does no good. What's the difference? The difference is the eyes of our heart in here and whether we are aware of what God is saying to us or not. And I'm telling you, according to this text, those eyes are opened through prayer. So I'll just say it a third time. If we want the eyes of people's hearts to be opened, we have to pray. We need to be praying. That's why prayer is so critical. Permit me a few more moments of your time. Paul begins to tell us what that prayer is. That he's praying for them to have the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. It's a definition, honestly, of what he means by the next phrase, with the one I've been choosing to focus on the whole morning. That phrase, to have the eyes of our heart enlightened, this is really what he's defining. He's really defining that is by saying, I want to, I'm asking God to give you the spirit of wisdom, which is the word Sophia, and the spirit of revelation, which is the word apocalypsos. That it would be revealed to you what is happening around you. That it would be revealed to you who God is and who, and who you are. It would be revealed to you an understanding of, of, the, of the end of man and the solution of Jesus Christ. We're going to get to some of those things, the, the, the heart of it next week. I can't wait. I'm, Lord willing, I, I just, it's, I about can't stand it. We can't get there today. But there's so much other stuff we have to talk about. I pray that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And that last phrase is key, in the knowledge of him. Because it is in him, in God, and ultimately in Jesus Christ that this wisdom and this revelation comes from. And again, I point you back to the Old Testament, to long before Jesus walked on the earth, to them looking forward to the Messiah and speaking prophetically about what he'd be like. And here's what Isaiah has to say. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. When the Messiah comes, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And look at what that Spirit is. The Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Listen, if you want to know things and you want to know the right things, you must get to know Jesus. It is upon him that the Spirit rests in fullness. Now, there's going to be some incredible things that Paul has to say to us about this book through this letter of Ephesians about how that works out in us. Incredible things, but it must begin with our belief in that, that they come ultimately through Jesus Christ. We must know him. That spirit of wisdom and of revelation 
is coming through the knowledge of him. By the way, the word for knowledge, the knowledge of him, is the word epignosis, which can also carry the meaning to acknowledge. Not just to know someone, but to acknowledge someone. Thus, it would read like this, that God would give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation as you acknowledge him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Because I can tell you that's actually how it happens, right? As you acknowledge Jesus Christ, your eyes of your heart begin to be open to see who he is and what he's done for you. That's how it works. There's a yielding. By the way, that's a good tie-in to last week's text because we talked about the fact that when we were sealed, remember we were, I referred you back to John and John the Baptist uh, talked about the fact that when we receive Jesus Christ, believe in him, trust in him, that we are sealed with this, this phrase that God is true. We are sealed with that God is true. In other words, that what God has said is right. So all this fits together. In fact, I would make the case that's probably, in fact, what Paul had in mind when he uses the word in the knowledge of him, is that as we acknowledge Jesus, that when we, as we begin to tell God, you are right. And by that I mean, let me just clarify again. When we tell God that you were right, we are actually telling him that I agree that I'm a sinner in desperate need of grace and that you are perfect and pure and holy and that we are eternally separated unless I take advantage of what you've done through Jesus Christ and hide myself in him. Unless I become like Ruth who lays next to Boaz and says, would you cover me? That's what has to happen. So when I tell God that you were right, that's what I'm telling you. I'm, it's all, it's, it's that whole thing. But as we acknowledge him, as we acknowledge Jesus, that is what allows the eyes of our heart to be opened up. Now, Jesus said these words as he prayed in John chapter 17. I'm going to end with this text here, this verse here today, setting us up for next week. This is eternal life, that they know you, God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Brothers and sisters, I already, I already told you this, so I shouldn't say it again necessarily, but we have such incredible things waiting for us in what Paul is praying and what he means when he says that the eyes of our hearts are opened. Things that I long for every one of us to know and receive and walk in. But today had to be first to help us to see that that process begins when we begin to acknowledge Jesus Christ, we begin to know God and say, you are right, and I need you. I'm in a place of need. As we begin to acknowledge him, that's when the eyes of our heart begin to open, and the things that we're going to read next week are going to become true. And since I made a big deal about it, I'm going to continue making a big deal about it. That most often happens in our lives when somebody is praying for us, Right? You see, every single prayer situation we ever have, every single need we ever have, every single physical need we ever have can always, 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 always be accompanied with an appropriate prayer of asking that God would open the eyes of their heart to know him and to yield to him. Because there's never a situation that is so dire that the eternal state of their soul is not more dire. There's never a physical need that is so pressing that where they end, will end up after they walk through the, date, the gate of death is more pressing. which means it's always appropriate. It's always appropriate when we pray for each other that we pray that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, of Jesus Christ, 
having the eyes of our hearts and opened up that we would begin to know him and see him, that we would humble ourselves before him. God, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you for a church body that wants to hear your word. I pray, God, that you are planting the seeds and bringing us to a place of of just more deeper understanding of your word, but maybe I shouldn't even say it that way because to be honest, to be consistent with the text that we're studying today is that, that not that we know more or understand in some clever way, but that we begin to see the truth as it really is and that it begins to affect us. Give us a heart of love for each other, God, that we truly would pray for each other. Give me, Father, and the other elders here as well, but give me this heart that I can lead by example. That I can truly say as Paul would say, follow me as I follow Christ. Lord, thank you. It's one of those times, God, as we are ending a message and all the fullness of what this morning held, it just is one of those times, God, it just feels like I don't even know how to put words together to tie it together or to, to make some neat bow on top or to really wrap things. I don't even know. I just know that you're here. You want, you want us to cling to you and you want us to bow before you and humble ourselves before you and cry out to you, acknowledge you, and you will sustain us, lead us, guide us, change us, grow us, bring us home. Thank you for your text this morning, Father. I praise you, Jesus Christ, for you make it have sense and reason. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, for illuminating to us these truths. May you be glorified, Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.